Welcome to the Twimmel AI Podcast. I'm your host, Sam Charrington. Thanks so much for joining us. And if this is your first time, I invite you to hit subscribe in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, YouTube, or wherever else you might be listening to the show. All right, everyone. I am here with Juliana Iani. Juliana is Vice President of AI Research and Development at Prosha. Juliana, welcome to the Twomo AI Podcast. Thanks, Sam. Glad to be here. I am really looking forward to digging into this conversation. In particular, we're going to learn a bit about some of the work that you and your team are doing on cancer diagnosis as well as the process of commercializing that. Before we dig into that topic, I'd love to have you share a little bit about your background and how you came to work in the field. Yeah, sure. So I guess I kind of have always had an interest in being able to help people. That's always where I wanted my career to go. And so I I pursued my undergraduate degree in biomedical engineering, thought that was the best way to do that. During my undergraduate, I did several internships. One of them was in biomedical informatics and actually had a kind of a bad mentorship experience during that internship, but ended up shaping my career positively. So I didn't have a lot of direction, ended up really kind of teaching myself machine learning principles, eventually got assigned a fantastic new mentor and learned quite a bit during that. But during that internship, learning all these things about machine learning, which wasn't really referred to as machine learning and anything anything that I was reading at the time, but all of, all of the same ideas. And I realized that data is very powerful, but we have kind of the most data in the medical field. It's in imaging. And so I got really, really interested in medical imaging and pursued that, you know, thought I needed to learn learn more about that. And so that's how I got very interested in MRI. I took a whole bunch of classes at Vanderbilt. I was really fascinated by everything that I learned there, wanted to pursue it. So I took a little bit of a detour. I you know, pursued kind of my second love, which was neuroscience. I did some research at a lab at, in, at Vanderbilt in visual attention and memory, studying the way the, way the brain works as you're doing those sorts of tasks. And that curiously kind of relates a lot to what I'm doing now. So I, I pursued my graduate degree in MRI I joined Will Grissom's lab at Vanderbilt and studied kind of image reconstruction and trajectory correction and trajectory optimization for MRI non-Cartesian trajectories. Mm-hmm. So kind of ways to make MRI faster, but still avoid having all these artifacts in your images. And then sort the latter half of my PhD, I was pursuing machine learning algorithms to identify some patient tailored parameters. So for high field imaging, so for 7T, which is not what's usually used in in hospitals, usually it's lower field right now. But for 7T, you can get better images, but you you just have to be a little bit more careful and and tailor things to to patients. And so... Sorry, when you say 7T, is that like a type of MRI? So it's a stronger magnet. Okay. But you tend to get kind of uneven images. They're kind of unevenly lit, if you will. Mm -hmm. And I was working on designing machine learning algorithms to predict the RF shim parameters, predict the the parameters of the scanner that you need to to tune that and make the image kind of uniformly lit. Got it. 
Got it. I imagine those are, you know, those parameters were typically the domain of the radiologist. Like they would have their hands on dials trying to figure out how to get the best image for a given patient. And now you're trying to automate that? Actually, it would be done by another algorithm. Oh, okay. The issue was that it would take a really long time. So you'd have to do a scan. So you already had the patient in the scanner. Mm-hmm. And then you had to run this really extensive algorithm to, to get the parameters and then go plug those into the scanner and then run the scans that you actually wanted to do. So it's just a, you know, not a very feasible process for most patients for bringing it kind of to the clinic. Got it. Got it. So that was what we were working on. And then doing all this in my PhD, I, I was really interested in machine learning, but seeing deep learning take off all around us. <laughs> I was pretty excited about the potential of that. And so really, really wanted to get in on it. And so I really wanted to go into industry and be a part of a company that was using deep learning for medical imaging and in a way that it could could actually impact patients' lives in the short term. And was Prosha already doing deep learning on images when you got there? Yes, yes. So Prosha was very small when I joined, less than 10 people at the time got in kind of early days, although the company had been around for a few years already, I think it was founded in 2014. Now, 10 people doing AI data stuff or 10 people total <laughs> the entire company? 10 people total the entire company. Wow. Okay. Um, yeah. Yeah. So it was, it was founded out of Johns Hopkins. Um, so there were, it was a group of, of founders and you know, maybe a salesperson or two selling the the image management platform, maybe three or four engineers. Yeah. And so tell us a bit about where deep learning comes into the picture. I was kind of conflating pathology images and, and radiology. MRI isn't actually radiology, right? Pathology images are kind of different from radiology. So usually, you know, if you have made a suspected cancer, you'll get like an MRI or a a CT scan. That'll be like the the first thing that happens. But later down the road, if there's still suspicion, you'll get a biopsy and that tissue gets sent off to a lab that processes it. They're eventually going to slice up the tissue into really thin pieces, embed it in wax and stain it and put it on a slide that like glass slide like you had in high school biology class like gets looked at normally under a microscope to to diagnose your cancer but what prosha deals with is actually digitized versions of those glass slides so very very high resolution images of very very small pieces of tissue so deep learning has has kind of taken off in the field of pathology field of kind of studying this type of image and there are a whole host of potential applications for it. What we focus on at Prosha is applications that are built in some way to make the pathologist's lives easier, to make labs more efficient. So enable more efficient assigning of cases to different pathologists or specialists, or enabling them to review their cases faster. We also focus on deep learning systems or as we probably controversially refer to them, uh, AI systems. We also focus on systems that can improve accuracy of pathologists. In some scenarios, there are certain diagnoses that are a lot harder to make than others. Mm -hmm. And pathologists often disagree on those diagnoses. 
And so any way that we can deliver, use AI to deliver information to the pathologists that improve their accuracy that is something that we're interested in too. So that's maybe a good segue to talking about the paper that you and your team uh, will be presenting at the ICCV Computational Challenges in Digital Pathology Workshop. If that's not enough of a mouthful, the title <laughs> of the paper is A Pathology Deep Learning System Capable of Triage of Melanoma Specimens Utilizing Dermatopathologist Consensus as Ground Truth. Did I get all that? <laughs> you did. You did. <laughs> Sorry for that. <laughs> we'll make our next title shorter. So what's this paper all about? So this paper is about new technology, new AI system that we've developed that's really kind of building on our previous work. So you know, previously, we we built a system that could sort of sort and triage pathology cases before pathologists reviewed them. It sorted them into four different categories that were not specifically diagnostic categories, but related to the diagnosis, kind of diagnostic groupings you could think of. The reason that we wanted to do that was to kind of make the pathologists work more efficient, you know, be able to, to have them review certain cases earlier in the day so they could order additional tests if they needed to earlier in the day, if it was a group of cases that could, that was more likely to need additional testing, things like that. Mm -hmm. But that previous system didn't do something that pathologists were really, really interested in, and that was to classify melanoma. Melanoma is, is not the most common form of skin cancer, but one of the most deadly. It's also one that pathologists disagree on a lot. So if something, if you go in and get a biopsy of your skin and that gets sent in and it's kind of one of the ones that looks suspicious for melanoma, mm -hmm. fairly common for pathologists to disagree on whether it actually is melanoma. And you tend to tend to want a subspecialist to review that. So there are dermatopathologists, is one of the long words in our title, who are the subspecialists who review these cases. And not okay. always, not always, but sometimes it's, it's not a very obvious one. You want that subspecialist to kind of give you a second opinion, essentially, on the yeah. case. So it would be more efficient if we could route the cases to them first. Uh -huh. Okay, okay. I guess one of the virtues of a long title is that it, actually says what the paper is about. And this one, I think, does a good job of kind of raising one of the, the core challenges that it sounds like you must face. If the, the, the specialists and you know, reviewers of these pathology images tend to disagree, that seems like that would make building data sets and collecting ground truth particularly difficult. Yes, yes, absolutely. I don't think we even realized how difficult when we first set out to build this system. <laughs> I don't think the pathologists that we were working with <laughs> realized exactly how much they disagree when we set out to build this. There's actually surprisingly not that much literature on the matter. Have you characterized the degree of disagreement among the pathologists looking at a given specimen? Yeah, it's hard. So there are, I guess, you know, a few different ways of doing that. What we did for the, this paper was to have three different dermatopathologists reviewing the cases, and specifically the ones that were melanocytic or, you know, basically 
the category that mel the broader category that melanoma is in mm -hmm. so that ranges from benign nevi which are just kind of like your basic mole all the way to you know invasive cancer but we had pathologists review all of those cases um, in three different ones and characterize you know how often did they disagree for which original diagnosis and what we ended up doing for this paper was to just say okay we're not going to use it if they didn't all agree because very often they didn't all agree especially for the ones that were kind of on the more suspicious ends of things i think it was something like 40 to 50 percent of the time they didn't agree so the 60% of the time, 50-60% of the time where they do agree, that becomes your training data set and right. the outcome that they agreed on is your label. But again, from the explicit title, it sounds like you're using some kind of consensus algorithm on real data, you know, to kind of predict the, the outcome. It's just that that three out of three pathologists agreed is basically what we're using as our ground truth. We didn't do anything. We didn't do anything fancy for this one in terms of creating like a score for how many of the pathologists agreed or something like that. But it would be interesting to do something like that. Okay. Yeah, I was I think I was envisioning some kind of like ensemble weird thing and like doing a consensus among predictions of some sort. Yeah. Well, <laughs> you're actually, you're not far off from what, what we did end up doing with one of the models in the system. So the system that actually makes these predictions, makes these classifications is, is a hierarchy of models. And the one that is actually classifying these melanocytic specimens is what we ended up building for that is a multitask model. And I think that a, a lot of the reason that we ended up wanting to do that was because of this discordance because the pathologists are disagreeing so often. Mm -hmm. So we, what we wanted to do was divide these specimens into three different categories. So kind of, you can think high, intermediate, and low risk. And, you know, with melanoma being the highest, invasive melanoma being the highest, and intermediate being melanoma in C2 or the lesions that were severely atypical, and then low being your benign ones. But so... You could do that as like a three-way classifier, right? We didn't end up doing that, doing it that way because at least in the early days of us building this, it didn't work very well. But I think a lot of the reason that it didn't work well was because of the, the disagreement. And so what we ended up doing was building a multitask classifier that just did binary classification at a time, essentially. Mm -hmm. So it was, can you distinguish the low risk from the high risk? Can you distinguish the low risk from the intermediate risk? Can we chunk up this classification into smaller tasks and just do that? Because our, our ground truth was just too noisy uh, to do this as, as just a typical like, three-way classifier. And the approach to training was kind of an end-to-end -end approach, you know, that kind of multitask trained this entire system, or did you train them independently or hierarchically or something like that? Yeah, yeah, that's a good question. We did we did end up having to train them independently. So it's not, okay. not an end-to-end -end system. It would be cool if it was. Uh -huh. but it sounds like you tried, though. Not quite. The system we built has kind of several pieces. So there's an embedder. There's kind of a hierarchy of three different models. 
that to arrive at a final classification would have been a lot to build this mm. as an end-to-end -end system. Yeah. Probably a lot of issues that we would have run into, but not impossible. So tell us about the model. What is it? You know, what are the components? I mean, you mentioned high level what the components are, but like, what are the components and how did you arrive at, you know, were they all custom? Was there some off the shelf stuff that you used? How did you ultimately arrive at a, an approach for this? Yeah. Yeah. So this system, like I said, was built off of a system that we previously built. So it's a bit of an evolution, many different pieces involved. One of the issues I haven't discussed yet that we've run into was that some of the images have artifacts that are kind of correlated in many cases with the ground truth. Mm -hmm. And so we wanted to get rid of those, hmm. namely the major ones that we encountered were that pathologists sometimes use pen ink to mark <laughs> cancer on the tissue. Yeah. That was an issue we ran into. So that was kind of a whole project that we did. And we had so we had a custom model built to eliminate pen ink from our images. Okay. And did you try to remove it or just kind of uh, block it out? Yeah, good question. So I guess the way to talk about this is to explain a little bit more about how our models work. First thing we have to do, because these are very, very large images, we have to kind of chunk them up. So we're first kind of detecting the tissue regions on the slide. And then we just kind of patch those up into what we call tiles. So they're maybe like mm. a whole bunch, thousands of 128 by 128 pixel images Got it. that are our tiles. And so when we remove ink, we, we literally just with... drop tiles. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I realized as I said it, that kind of blocking it out wouldn't be much better than just leaving the ink in if you fed a image with blocked out ink to the downstream model. Yeah, probably not, but it depends. I've seen a paper that tried to use GANs to just generate, you know, infill? Like tissue look, yeah, infill, uh -huh. but it didn't look like it worked very well. <laughs> <laughs> so I don't, maybe there's a strategy there. Mm -hmm. Yeah, to what degree was that 128 by 128? kind of an architectural hyperparameter that you played with. Was that just, where'd that decision come from? Sam, there are so many hyperparameters <laughs> and so little time. <laughs> we didn't, we haven't played with that one yet, okay. actually. It was just convenient and we, we ran with it. It worked, so we ran with it. You know, we've seen over the, the years kind of many approaches to trying to detect cancer in images, all different kinds of cancers, all different kinds of approaches to the point where like some very, very famous AI people said, oh, this is a solved problem. Like, <laughs> you know, we're going to replace radiologists with AI systems. I think we've all kind of dialed back, you know, that enthusiasm a bit or a rhetoric if you would go that far, but give me a sense for, or give us a sense for what distinguishes this particular work from the other work out there that is trying to do similar things? Yeah. Yeah. Definitely not a solved problem. I feel like uh, we all generally in this industry now, like understand how complicated the, even the self-driving cars problem is. And uh -huh. this is at least that complicated. That's actually interesting because as much respect that I have for the complexity of this problem relative to solving it, 
when I think of a self-driving car, I think of a much more complex system, lots of moving parts. And and in your mind, they're kind of on the same order in terms of complexity. Yeah. Elaborate on that. Where's the complexity that's not obvious to us, you know, when we think of problems like you're trying to solve here? Yeah. Yeah. Great question. I mean, it wasn't obvious to me when I, when I got into this field, <laughs> you know, it's like ImageNet is solved, right? What could be more complicated, but it, it is quite complicated. So when you think about what a pathologist does, they're not just, not just kind of looking at an image and classifying it. They kind of synthesize a whole bunch of input, but pathologists, when they're looking at an image, they're not just thinking about the image, they're thinking about the patient's history and clinical information. They're thinking about the patient's age. And they're thinking about the last time that they saw a patient like this, or, you know, all these other inputs that they're kind of synthesizing to make a diagnosis. And then aside from that, the uh, diagnosis itself can be very, very complicated for some of these things. So in dermatopathology, which is skin pathology, there are probably over 500 different diagnoses that you can have. So there's a lot of different types of patterns that you need to be looking for in these type of images that that we look at. They're very, very high resolution. And so the pathologist is kind of first looking at them kind of at a high level and just seeing, okay, what are the regions that I should focus my attention on? And what are the reasons I regions I can totally ignore? Because they probably in many cases literally can't go through pixel by pixel they have to decide okay what can i ignore kind of like a driver does when they're driving mm-hmm. a car what where do i focus my attention and then they're going in at higher power to those regions that may be concerning based on all of their knowledge <laughs> and looking for very particular associations between like one region of an image and another it sounds like the you know the high level summary is that the problem that you're trying to solve is not the binary classification that we've been sold in the media. It's a much more complex and nuanced classification problem. Yeah. And that, among other things, increases the level of complexity on par with kind of the perceptual problem that a driver, you know, something that's trying to drive might be experiencing. That, that's kind of the origin of your, your comment. What's different about the problem that you're trying to solve with this paper and, you know, some of the other kind of cancer detection systems that have been publicized or that are prevalent in other fields or being worked on in other fields? Yeah. Yeah. One of the big differences and one of the things that we're really excited about with this work is that there hasn't there hasn't yet been any kind of system, even like a different stain or a genetic test or something like that that can identify melanoma before a pathologist reviews a case. And the reason we're really excited about the system being able to do that is because it means that you can send that case to the right person Mm -hmm. very quickly, rather than it having to get passed along from one person to another to, to say like, oh, this isn't what I should be diagnosing. Let me send it to my colleague down the hall or across the city. So we, we think we can speed up, um, the timeline for getting melanoma diagnosed with this system, which is is pretty exciting, should lead to patients getting their diagnosis faster and getting treatment faster ultimately. And so is the is it the case that other systems that are out there like rely on some kind of 
metadata or coding or something like that that comes from the pathologist in order to make their decision? Like, Good question. Yeah. So with skin pathology, really aren't that many AI systems out there mm. at all. We're one of the first to really explore this and definitely the first to really explore it at a, at a level where it's this close to the clinic. Mm -hmm. There have been a number of papers kind of with a more academic bit exploring the issue. But the only other tests that are out there right now that can detect melanoma are tests that are run after the pathologist has looked at the image. So it's basically, you know, they'll be looking at something that looks suspicious for melanoma and it's maybe borderline. So the pathologist is not sure. Is this melanoma? Is this not? You know, should I recommend that they get a really deep excision or not? And so they'll send it off to to a lab that does like genetic testing or does an additional stain on the tissue so that they can tell a little bit more about it. And, and those tests will kind of like give you like a score for the likelihood of melanoma, but you can't run it on just like any skin specimen. Got it. They're only intended for after the pathologist has, has looked at the case. And talk a little bit about the specimen versus image issue. You know, when we read about, you know, a system that might, you know, one of the early ones was identifying breast cancer in a radiological image. It sounds like one of the big distinctions you're making is that your system is looking at the specimen level. Why is that important? Yeah. So with pathology, there are usually a couple different whole site images that belong to a, a given specimen. And that specimen, by the way, might correspond to like a biopsy that has been taken like of a mole. So your your mole might might end up being kind of a specimen. Mm -hmm. And it might end up with tissue on a couple different slides that the pathologist has to look at. Some of those slides might not even have any cancer or any mole on them. They might be totally clean, totally normal skin. Mm -hmm. And so the pathologist, when they're making a diagnosis, they look at all the slides that are part of the specimen or the case. We wanted our AI system to be able to do that too. Mm -hmm. It was a challenge because there's so much tissue on a single slide, not, you know, not to mention multiple slides, but we're excited to be able to do that because it means that our system is a little bit closer to reality to what the pathologist is, is actually doing. Is the model's ability to work at the specimen level kind of part of its training routine? And I guess in contrast, what I'm imagining is that there's a simple heuristic that is, hey, if any of these slides has cancer, then the specimen has cancer. Is that not actually true? Yeah, it's a good question. And at what you just mentioned, if any of these slides has cancer, then the specimen has cancer. That's what we'd done for our previous system. So okay. it was kind of aggregating the, the classifications at the end. Yeah. I guess it's a less accurate way of doing it. It introduces more room for, for error in your model. And so we did develop a way to train basically with all the slides in the specimen. We do that basically by including all of the tiles from all of the slides in one bag under the multiple instance learning paradigm. So what that's doing is basically within your network, you're kind of, you're processing the features from, from each of the tiles kind of individually. And then you have this aggregation function that's mm -hmm. basically kind of combining 
what the model has learned from all those tiles in a in a in some kind of learned weighted fashion. Mm -hmm. And is it that if a model makes this kind of simple aggregated decision, the decision, um, you know, the error rate is higher uh, because that decision is just wrong sometimes, and, and you know the the aggregated heuristic is just not correct, or is it more nuanced like by doing the aggregation, the training is more efficient or the model learns different things. And so because it learns those different things, it makes better decisions. I, I think the answer is both. Yeah, I think it is a more error prone process if you have to do that aggregation at the end because you have the chance to like, you know, let's say you have three different images in a mm -hmm. single specimen. You, you have three different chances for your model to make an error on one mm -hmm. of those, and then you're going to aggregate them. But the other side of the coin is that the way we do this should improve the training process as well in some form or fashion. So we could do training by having a pathologist go in and label each of the slides. So I have three slides from the specimen. The specimen is a melanoma specimen. Two of the slides have melanoma and one of them you know, it's just normal skin. You yeah. could have a pathologist label that, but it's not how the medical records are. The medical records just have, say, you know, this specimen has three slides and it's melanoma. So it's like an extra data curation step. Okay. If we can't directly use that, you know, the other thing that we could do is train a system with those three slides kind of independently and yeah. say they're all melanoma, but then you're introducing noise into your system. What's the overall structure of your model? Yeah, we so we talked a little bit about how our first step is kind of removing ink from the slides. Yeah. After we do that, what we want to do is basically create embeddings. And so we actually just use an off-the-shelf model for that. We use ImageNet trained on ResNet for this work. And so we we basically create feature embeddings for each of the tiles independently. And then we have a hierarchy of models that actually makes the classification based on those embeddings. And the first, I guess there's one model at the top of the hierarchy, and that is basically distinguishing melanoma from everything else, or I guess melanoma and suspected melanoma from everything else. And the reason that, why we did that is because we wanted the system to be highly sensitive to melanoma. And mm -hmm. since melanoma is only about 2% of the overall cases, we had quite a class imbalance problem. Yeah. So that's the first step of the hierarchy. And once we have sort of suspected melanoma group, we have a subclassifier that is kind of refining that classification. This is the multitask model that I talked about before that's distinguishing the high, low, and intermediate risk specimens. And then on the other side of things, you know, for the specimens that were basically like classified as not at risk for melanoma, we are providing four different classifications. So we have a separate classifier that's doing that. And it's basically distinguishing the two most common types of cancer. So squamous cell carcinoma and basal cell carcinoma, and then those lower risk melanocytic specimens. So basically your benign nevi or moles. And then we have this wonderful group called other, and that, that is literally everything else. There are hundreds and hundreds of diagnoses in skin pathology, and so we couldn't possibly classify them all. And mm -hmm. so we have this catch-all group. The embedding 
component of this you mentioned was a ResNet trained on ImageNet. Was that fine-tuned or just off-the-shelf ResNet trained on ImageNet kind of plopped in the, your model? Actually off-the-shelf, surprisingly enough. Cool, cool. You mentioned that you trained the components independently, or at least the classifier independently. Is that that your training yeah. data is the feature in the embedding? For... Yeah, yeah, it's the embeddings. Okay. For for each of the three okay. models in the hierarchy. Yeah. Cool. And so tell us about how it all worked and kind of results you saw and you know, any challenges you ran into, that kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah. So this this worked pretty well, but we were able to distinguish the melanoma specimens from the others pretty well. Yeah. So we we had area under the curve of 0.93 and classifying the melanocytic suspect specimens mm-hmm. and reproduced that pretty well in the two labs that we had for validation. So we were pretty happy with this result. I'm sure it could be improved on with more data even, but the fact that we could get a decent number of the melanomas kind of pulled out into this suspect classification already means that you can prioritize those mm-hmm. in your case list if you're a pathologist. So, you know, versus they're just kind of like randomly yeah. interspersed throughout your day. Otherwise, we thought mm-hmm. this was and now was pretty exciting. You're the head of AI research and development at Procia. Like, how does this translate into something that has impact at health centers and and with users of your system? Yeah, yeah, that's a great question. So kind of have to demonstrate that, you know, the system that we've built actually has utility in practice and that you kind of see similar results in practice. So we've already done a couple of deployments of this particular system at a couple academic medical centers in a trial. Our first step was to make sure that it wasn't biasing the pathologist. You don't want to impact their diagnosis in a negative way. So we were, we were able to show that, that it didn't have a, any significant impact on their diagnosis. And the next step is you know, showing that you know, it, it does indeed you know, allow us to reduce the turnaround time for these cases. And for that, I think we need to, we need to show that at a larger site and one that's, that's kind of actually you know, experiencing these challenges that they have you know, multiple dermatopathologists or subspecialists and multiple general pathologists. And how do they allocate their cases in the most ideal way that makes them the most efficient? Beyond the research, some promising results kind of in practice, but work to be done to, I guess, show that it has the desired benefit at scale. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Awesome. Awesome. Well, Juliana, thanks so much for sharing a bit about what you're up to and the paper. I'm sure there's lots more interesting stuff. This last question that I asked about kind of productizing it, you know, I can imagine going on for a long time just talking about that, particularly in a kind of mission critical, highly regulated space like healthcare, but super interesting project. And thanks so much for sharing it. Awesome. Thanks, Sam. Glad to be here and glad to share with you guys. Awesome. Thank you. All right, everyone, that's our show for today. To learn more about today's guest or the topics mentioned in this interview, visit TwimmelAI.com. Of course, 
If you like what you hear on the podcast, please subscribe, rate, and review the show on your favorite podcatcher. Thanks so much for listening and catch you next time.